Welcome to the Peace at Home podcast. I'm your co-host, Sinan. And I'm Jamie. And I'm Ben. And our music is by Jordan from Com Radio. I mean, is, is Com Radio still a thing? I guess it's still a thing, technically. That's where he's from anyway. I mean, it, it hasn't been unpersoned. It, well, not yet. You know, yeah. it's just, we're waiting <laughs> on it, really. All right, everyone, it's episode 10. We made it to yeah. 10 main episodes, which is I wish insane. I wish I had a little party popper to let off there. I'll put in, like, I'll find some sound effect of, like, a bunch of party shit to put on in the background of this specific bit I'm talking right now. Yeah. We've made it yeah. to 10 episodes. We're officially better than, like, probably 90% of Netflix original shows. <laughs> if, if only The Witcher hadn't come out with a second season, we'd probably be ahead of them at this point. Mm. <laughs> and that would have been great. It could have been a real flex then, but I suppose we will eventually overtake them, and then I'll get to do my flex. I'll have to commission yeah. a specific image. For that one from the graphics guy. <laughs> well, maybe Henry Cavill should just make The Witcher cheaper. Yeah. And then he could do more episodes, you know? That's it. To be, to be honest, I'm a fan of the books. Turns out, not so good at the game. Uh, <laughs> I, um, oh, shame. I've well, yeah, still never played it. Well, because what happened was, I dyed my hair white for a YouTube video. Famously, <laughs> of course, when I was, as when you I was, it was all right. Okay, so here's the deal I was uh doing a Palpatine bit for one of my videos, so but Palpatine has white hair and I don't, which is a bit of an obstacle, I would say. Yeah, and so I, I spray dyed my hair white. It took two cans of spray, by the way. <laughs> I was like really fucking dizzy during the recording, <laughs> I was like properly fucked up during it. So in case it was really why that video came out kind of like that, uh, it might be because I was inhaling white sprayed air dye. So you're giving yourself boomer hair and boomer brain at the same That's time. That's it, yeah. And then, <laughs> and, and then I decided to stream The Witcher 3 that night. Which, because you know, I have white, white long hair. What, how am I? How am I going to miss this shot? Basically, but yeah. what happens is my mum shows up to the stream. Oh, wonderful! And she's like, "What the hell happened to your hair? Did something bad happen?" Because <laughs> like, apparently in Turkey, if you uh, if if someone if your hair suddenly goes white overnight, it means that you're like you're grieving or something bad's happened or something like that, and. I had uh, our graphics guy, actually, Emma, on the stream at that point. And he was like, yeah, it's a superstition in Turkey. My mum, like, clapped back in the chat, like, no, it's a fact. <laughs> she just clapped back and was like, is. I'm not, not having this shit. Like, so, yeah, um, that's what that is. Also, I'm now thinking about Liz Trust Prime Minister, because that's happening. Not to do oh, current boy. affairs too much, but, oh, God. That's turned all my remaining hair white. Yeah. Oh no! It's well, so there's bad. still there's still a chance that it could be fucking Rishi. Yeah, it could be Rishi Shunak. That's I can't believe that's mm. now the like positive non-nuclear Holocaust option. Oh, Christ, we're so doomed. Yeah, it, we're so fucked. She's gonna she's gonna like get confused about like you know you know um I was doing a I was doing a bit earlier where I was like she's gonna confuse Istanbul's name and say it's Constantinople. And then, oh, like, yes. and then that fucking fascist who was holding up maps is going to show up and be like, actually, the Falkland Islands are Turkish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's where we're headed. We're headed to the Falkland Islands are Turkish. Shirt coming soon. Um, I mean, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> really fucking piss some people off if I made that into a shirt, wouldn't it? <laughs> I think what would be funnier is if I had it written in Spanish. 
as well. <laughs> I think that would actually be a really funny. Anyway, let's not. Anyway, um, I might have to get in touch with someone. Anyway, 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 anyway. Uh, so we're at the tenth episode, which is big, and I feel like what better to what better to talk about on the tenth episode than the the guy, the big guy who's been in the background of everything we've been talking about. Let's talk about him for a bit. You know, for once, people should talk about Mustafa Kemal, you know. Yeah. People don't speak enough about him. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, underappreciated in his own country, (laughs) some might say. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, it makes sense. We've reached the natural end of his period in government in nine episodes. God, that was, was, what, 18 years in nine episodes, something like that. The implied pace is not good, I have to be honest with you. <laughs> the implied paces will be done with this podcast in around 2042, which is also when Nottingham will be underwater because of climate change. So, oh, nice. We'll have got it in just in time for me to just swim into the sunset. Well, a I searing mean, hot sunset. We might, we might yet stall climate change with uh, PM Truss's like, patented nuclear winter option. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Actually, that's the thing. She is, in fact, the most green candidate in the sense she's going to make everything glow green. Wonderful. So there we go. God, can you imagine if, like, the the stupidest fucking Tory they've ever had inadvertently brought about the golden age of superheroes by giving everyone (laughs) mutant powers? God, what is is my goddamn mutant power going to be? It's going to be something really shit. Like... All the comic books are about all of the cool, you know, mutations. Yeah. Instead, most of us are going to end up like fucking Toad. Uh, yeah, well, the oh, comic, the comics are always about the cool mutations, not the British X Men. <laughs> <laughs> Some guy who's fused with his wheelie bin. Oh, oh yes. god, yes, the bin and tonic guy. Yes, what? A- I, I stand by. I, I think if that's a bit, and I suspect it is a bit, that it's one of the most well-executed bits I've ever seen. Yeah, but on the other hand, like, just leave the guy alone. He's in a bin. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, like, like who? Yeah, <laughs> like who gives a shit? Honestly, but like, my main thing was like, he's kind of got a point. Just leave him the fuck alone. It's his own yeah. bin. Who gives a shit? Just have you never, have you never in a bin. Have you never seen Bazaar the Grouch before? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of like, have you never seen British suburbia before? Because of yeah. course, someone's got in their fucking bin with a drink. Like, no, he wasn't the only person photographed doing that, though, was he? Oh, of course not. Well, yeah, of course, he, of course he wasn't. It was 40 degrees. Fucking hell, that heat wave fried everyone's fucking brain. Oh, yeah. The, the, old, the old guy that lives next door to me, ma'am, both days, sat outside shirtless with his one concession to, like, fucking heat stroke was he had a face mask pulled across the top of his head and, like, crumped his ears. You know, the way, like, those guys on Monty Python always had, like, knotted hankies on their heads. Beautiful. Yeah. So... I realise we've been distracted from the main topic here a little bit. Yeah. A tiny bit distracted, but that's okay. We've got time. Well, we've got until my partner comes home, sees I haven't hung up the laundry, and then I get loudly executed on the recording, and then Jamie has to edit it all. So. Oh, yeah. Plus, plus well, I've got a Morgborg session at half eight. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we, well, we are on the clock. So. Just make sure, make sure you leave a note for your partner to upload your audio when she's yeah. done murdering you. <laughs> she'll, she'll know. So... <laughs> So we wanted, well, I wanted to talk about Mustafa Kamal because 10th episode, the big guy, you know, let's figure out what we actually know about the big guy, or what everyone agrees on, because there are kind of two versions of him, right? That it's kind of like Jesus. There's biblical Jesus, and then there's historical Jesus. So there's kind of like, you know, 
map YouTube Mustafa Kamal, and then there's like historical Mustafa Kamal. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's it's gonna be fun figuring out which one's the more outlandish, though. I reckon. Yeah. Luckily, with his early life, immediately in his early life, to be fair, we come into like a conspiracy theory about him. Which, incidentally, I uh, whenever I I mentioned Ataturk on the podcast account because I was replying to someone who was like, "Oh, this podcast I like is also talking about sun language theory." Which, by the way, (laughs) by the way, we did that first. So, like, don't fucking steal our bit. By the way, I'm just being (laughs) like very clear about whose bit this is. But never mind that bit. Uh, Just wait, wait until Trash Future get on on it. Oh, oh for fuck's no. sake. But, tra- but Trash Future have a Turkish bit, and it's about the lustful Turk. Which, <laughs> by the way, having met a lot of the Trash Future people, does now feel weirdly pointed. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, it does feel a bit pointed at this point, I won't lie. Like, um, mm. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm being sensitive about it, I don't know. <laughs> they've, they've seen you firsthand devouring a Vianetta. They, well, I'm pretty sure they've seen me firsthand drinking several beverages, so. Uh. <laughs> and look, that is that is something to behold. So, but there is an account that replies, auto replies to anything about Ataturk. With like, Ataturk was a Western puppet. And by the way, you should read Western puppet in free brackets. Oh, no. Ooh. Yeah. Cause he, cause he destroyed Islam in Turkey, which is news to like everyone in Turkey, because like ninety nine percent of them are officially Muslims. Hmm. So like, incidentally, another great banging like secularism right there on your ID card that says your religion. Oh, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I'm sure that doesn't cause any problems for anyone. Although I did see a thread of some guy desperately going through the legal procedure to change his religion to Tengriism on his ID. Oh, yes. And I couldn't get a read on whether he was like a fascist or just like sort of a hippie kind. Well, I suppose there's a bit of overlap there because of, you know, all the hippies became Reaganites. But, but you know. Um... <laughs> get, get him on the pod. Get him on the pod, we might. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently he his his theory is that if he can he showed everyone the legal process of changing your religion in Turkey and it's like a fucking ball ache, right? But he said like I'm sure once this process is well publicized, it will Tengriism will be the second largest religion in Turkey. Which <laughs> he might be I right. To, I have to say he might be right. I don't know. Well, I have this weird anxiety about this sort of thing. The the gods mm. love an optimist, if nothing else. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know whether he's doing, like, a kind of, you know, like, Levain Satanist type deal. I don't know if he's doing that or if he's, like, sincerely, like, I believe in the Sky Father. The sun is his lantern. And he fucked the earth, which is where people came from. I'm not even kidding. That is more or less the mythology summed up. But, no, wait, um, did he fuck the sea or the earth? Actually, I'm not sure. He fucked one of them. That then, one's, to be honest. I'm yeah. Into it. Yeah. And then the the humans end up fucking a wolf later, which is really weird. (laughs) I don't don't know what what the fucking deal was with that. Anyway, I'm 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 sure we'll talk about Turkey's creation myth and and the wolf fucking and all that later. But for (laughs) now, let's go back to the serious topic, which is Mustafa Kemal. And the fact that there are like two, there are two versions of him, right? There's the real, well, the historical version, the one that contemporaries write about, and then there's the, like, fake version. And we're going to have to try and figure out which one's which. But there's a bunch of shit everyone kind of agrees on, right? 
Yeah. So mm. everyone agrees that he was born in what's called Selanik in Turkish, or is now Thessaloniki, which you might note is a Greek-sounding name. That's because it's oh. in Greece. Uh, well, it wasn't in Greece when he was born, but it's Greece now. Mm. So his dad is this gentleman called Ali Reza, who is, uh, I believe, a, a sort of like customs official, lumber trader, uh, you know, officer and like local militia kind, you know, you kind yeah. of bureaucrat class person. And in fact, um, his, his family are always described as sort of like precariously middle class, you know, you know, like lower middle class, the kind of person who 2008 radicalized. Oh, that's yeah. <laughs> that's who that's what his his um his family background is. There, but of course, because this is a Turkish person we're talking about, there are like wildly different theories about whether his dad was Albanian, whether <laughs> uh, it, it's it's really fucking nuts. It's gonna get even more nuts. Uh, whether he his dad was actually Jewish, um. Which, uh, I don't know what fucking difference that would have made, but okay. Or whether his dad was actually Bulgarian. Oh. I feel, given the premise of Turkish nationalism, at least in theory, being like, it's a civic nationalism, it doesn't actually matter. But of course, uh, the thing about Selanik at the time is it's a very cosmopolitan city, right? You've got Albanians and Bulgarians and Jewish people and um, Serbs and Turks and Greeks which I'm sure was perfectly fine and wasn't at all tense. But... Yeah. Are there any, are there any Ataturk Serbian uh, theories? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, there's... If you look on, like, Balkan... Cursed Balkan YouTube comments, there is always one of, like, haha, Ataturk was a Serb. But then a Serbian linguist was, like, actually Serbs are Turks. <laughs> we yeah. were, as, as we'll recall from the Sun Language theory uh, episode. So I don't understand what the fucking difference is at this point, but there is uh, there is this sort of conspiracy theory that Islamists like uh, liked to spread about him, which was that his ancestors were secretly like that he had Jewish ancestry, which one who gives a fuck, and two like really weird thing to focus on, but also that his uh, ancestors were specifically Dunmer, and Dunmer is kind of like I I. I hate to use the term, and I use it only because it's an easier term for people to understand in Dunmer, which is crypto-Jews. Oh, like conversos. Yeah, yeah, hmm. exactly. Like, they had secretly... Con they'd, so, we're going to get a friend of the stream on to talk about uh, this particular person, but there's a, a rabbi called Sabotai Svi who started a sex cult, um, essentially, claiming that he was the Messiah. And... Oh. Yeah, and he did it in Izmir, and all of his followers seek basically publicly converted to Islam. But the huh. sort of the conspiracy theory is: did they really convert to Islam, or are they secretly still Jewish? We don't know. And oh, so, boy. so basically, there's this conspiracy theory that Mustafa Kemal is in fact a secret Jew, <sighs> which <laughs> explains some of this. He was a Western puppet bullshit, you see. This this mm. reminds me of those fucking dipshits you would see on the internet, and by the internet I mean Twitter and Facebook, but like f holy fuck so much on Facebook where they like you know they they're giving it out about how like the Muslims are just inherently like at odds oh. with civilized society, yeah, and you go 
yeah, there's like fucking billions of them, and they they they're fine, and everyone like I can't remember what the word is, but there's like oh takia takia that's yeah. it yeah. yeah yeah they're all just secretly like pretending to be civilized people because of takia, and it's like you motherfuckers should just not learn new words. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's like when, um, I forget who the fucking Britain first goons were, but they went to, and I'm going to note this, a non-Muslim restaurant, assuming that the proprietors were Muslim. Now, I think they were Indian, so you can imagine what the mistake was that they made, and they kept on shouting at them about, you take zakat from the, uh, from the food, you take zakat. And zakat is like... Um, is is like a wealth tax. It's not like yeah. a thing you tax or you put onto food. Like it's <laughs> it's like it's alms. It's like it's not a wealth tax because that implies there's like a state doing it. But like it's yeah. an alms you give to the poor because you're rich and not a cunt. Like <laughs> Yeah, why do I I got my fucking YouTube script open and it's just opened onto what's the deal with the boomers? <laughs> I'm like, that's, and that is kind of given we talked about facebook kind of appropriate so he's born mustafa right he gets his second name kemal which is uh, you know it's an arabic word it kind of means either means like perfect or mature or something like that and it's a nickname given to him allegedly by his maths teacher because he was very capable he was very competent he could add those numbers folks no one it's no tough. one could um no one could add numbers better than him. Or was it because there was another student there called Mustafa and he uh, wanted to make him you know, separate him from him? See. Can he also cheer a meeting though? Can he take minutes? <laughs> yeah, well he, should should Mustafa Kamal in fact be the uh the leader of the Labour Party? He'd be more, more left wing than Keir Starmer at least. I yeah, uh, I have to say I'm incredibly suspicious of the kind of maths math teacher it gives a student the nickname Mature. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> Very Look, mature for his age. 19th century Ottoman Empire. I don't know. We keep, <laughs> we, keep, we keep noticing parallels between Turkey and Britain, and, well, I don't know. Just for, like a, a pro tip for anyone considering a career in teaching, don't go around calling the students MILFs. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> That's um... generally frowned upon. Oh, God boy. fucking damn it. I'm not sure how I'm going to continue with this in the tone I wanted to continue it in. So I'm going to lean into it. So, so Mustafa Kamal originally uh, is encouraged to attend the religious school by his mum, because his mum is quite a, allegedly quite a conservative person. So he goes to the religious school. But his dad's like, well, why don't we send him to a private school that actually teaches, you know, facts and logic? No. We're gonna we're gonna own people with facts and logic. But <laughs> I say that I say that in a joking way. But it's important to note the background here, which is that this is in the background of what was called the Tanzimat period in the Ottoman Empire. And Tanzimat is a word that means basically reform. You can think of it as like the Meiji Restoration in Japan, only like much less competently done, and with much more centralizing of power in the hands of an emperor to the point that the emperor gets cooed by the military, and then they have all of the power, which is great. Weird how, weird how that keeps happening. Yeah, how could this go wrong? Anyway, um, but he he goes to this private school, and uh, his his father dies uh, when he's quite young, when he's seven years old, and his mum's like, "Well, that's it, son. Sorry, because we, I should be clear. He has like siblings and stuff, but only one makes it to adulthood." But his mum's like, "Well, that's it. You're the eldest son. Time to go work at the like timber yard or whatever. That's it." 
see ya, off to work, would ya? But instead, what he does is he does kind of the opposite of what I did, and he secretly entered an uh, an exam for the military school, the local military school in Salanik. Oh. And he uh, and he he ends up uh, he ends up in nineteen uh, sorry eighteen ninety six nineteen eighty six would have been a bit late. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> he ends up going to Monaster. Marty McFly was involved in that. I think. <laughs> yeah, he ends up in like Monaster uh, Military High School, which is like in Macedonia, North Macedonia. I shouldn't say Macedonia. The Greeks will be mad at us now. Well, they can get in the queue. <laughs> yeah, well, to be fair, yeah, I've pretty much gone on a fucking tour of Turkey's neighbours and shit on them through this podcast. Yeah, so, how and have they not made Turkey. them mad yet? <laughs> yeah, and, well, to be fair, yeah, I've also pointed out that, like, our really Nazi Prince Andrew is named after their Prince Andrew who bungled the military operation so bad oh, the monarchy yes. got abolished. So... <laughs> <laughs> but he he eventually ends up at the the very famous Ottoman Military Academy, uh, which is now the Turkish Military Academy, and is now and now allows women to attend, which is which at this time would have been super illegal. But he ends up graduating uh, in so he ends up moving to Istanbul first of all, and then he ends up graduating in 1902 from this high school, and then he graduates from the Ottoman Military College in 1905. And he enters the uh, he enters the military as you would do with that kind of education. But he was arrested and thrown in jail briefly because it turns out while he was at school he liked to read books Ooh. from Europe. Ooh. And books from Europe from the period of time when they were doing abolishing their monarchies. Mm. Whoa. Oh. Whoa, what's happened here? So he ends up being arrested and thrown in jail for about seven months. And it turns out his old teacher basically comes in and is like, look, you just let the guy go. It's not a fucking big deal, is it? You read some books. Just because the books were illegal doesn't mean you should be arrested for it. Which, I mean, is an interesting way to interpret legal enforcement, I guess. Yeah, but... this, was, this wasn't the maths teacher, was it? No, no, no. This was his, uh, the, the, the sort of director of the military school. Oh, right, right. Rizab Hasha. No, how would his dipshit maths teacher in Salamik <laughs> have enough pull with the Ottoman authorities to be like, hey, could you let uh, my very mature student out, please? <laughs> yeah, just give me a character reference, you know? <laughs> so, he ends up being assigned after his release to the Fifth Army, which, and the Fifth Army is based in Damascus. Now, as you might imagine, Damascus is what we might call, politely, a bit shit at the time. Uh, I could have said something else. I didn't, because mostly because I kind of like Damascus as a city. It's quite nice, apparently. You're in a pre-Civil War, mm. right? And post-Ottoman Empire, and also post-France, to be fair. I don't think France did a very good job of it. But here he starts making his sort of connections with people who will later be sort of part of his movement, right? So he ends up hanging out with this gentleman called Ali Fuat, who is later called Ali Fuat Jebesoy, who is a um who is one of the sort of higher ranking generals that end up being involved in the resistance in Western Turkey against Greeks. He's actually specifically um the he's actually the one who started the independence war technically, because he's the one who organized the first military resistance. Huh. So he is, in fact, the first one. And he's kind of famous because he was appointed as the ambassador to, to the Soviet Union. Um, and basically, he kept beefing with Ismet Inonu. And, uh, yeah. 
So he was. So Mustafa Kemal was like, "How about we send you off to the Soviet Union to hang out with Lenin and and Stalin? And just see how that goes. Sign sign treaties with them. Hang out. Enjoy Moscow. You know. What uh, a job, man. Yeah, what God. A job. What a job. And he's basically the one who negotiated the treaty that 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 sort of made the modern border. Well, basically kind of made the modern border that now exists between uh turkey and the caucasus right so it's mm. it's basically his line it's basically a combination of the military victories and the line that he drew and i mean he ends up being a member for the uh democrat party uh who we will come to uh, actually relatively soon we're going to learn about the democrat party and uh and how the first ever like properly democratically elected prime minister of turkey got executed for treason Oh, nice. Which, you know, is pretty normal. Uh, yeah. a, and yeah, warning, a warning for the Americans, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's why they keep not democratically electing their leaders, just in <laughs> case they end up being executed. But, yeah, he, he's, not a, like, he's not a huge character, but he is an important character in terms of the Kem- early Kemalist resistance, or, like, early nationalist resistance to Greek invasion. And he ends up joining this very small uh, sort of revolutionary uh, organization called Vatan Vahuriet, which means Motherland and Liberty, which, uh, to be honest, is, uh, well, um, basically, they didn't want the Sultan to have all of this concentrated power. They thought the power should be, you know, distributed differently. and. It's kind of interesting to note that, well, uh, the, the, the power should be distributed differently is what basically every political party formed out of the military seemed to think. Because there was more than one. <laughs> because of course there was more than one. So he ends up getting promoted relatively quickly because it's obvious he's quite a talented officer and, you know, this is not, this is not Napoleon in pre-revolutionary France. He's, he's not a piece of shit who everyone hates. So he does get promoted. And he eventually joins this little-known political party called the Committee of Union and Progress. Oh, yeah. The Genocide Party. Yeah, those boys. Yeah, the Genocide Party. Now, this is one of these things where people get, like, where there's, like, a clash between historical nationalist myth and then, like, the anti-Turkish nationalist myth, which is, like, how much did he really know about what was going on? Uh, We'll get to it. But the answer is, it, dep- it quite literally, based on sources, seems to depend on who you ask. Yeah. Because mm. there's this sort of school of thought that was like, well, he was a relatively senior military officer who was in the political party that was doing it. So how could he not know? But also there's an argument that he was in Gallipoli and then in, in Syria... So, like, how much could he have noticed? But then that doesn't really hold water particularly well, because where, would, where were Arminians marched through? Syria. Shit, so, like, how, how specifically concentrated on the front line that was slowly collapsing against the British could you be? Although the dates don't quite match for him to know about it directly. It's an open question, basically, yeah. is what I'm saying. Mm. It's all a rich tapestry. Yes. I like and... the contrasts. <laughs> so he joins this party... But basically joins it as a wrecker and is like, I really don't like all of your policies. Your policies suck. Uh, but then he ends up being appointed the inspector of railway in Eastern Romelia. So he's in charge of the trains. 
oh. in in this uh in this sort of largely autonomous basically part of Bulgaria region. And then he actually ends up joining in the the infamous Young Turk Revolution, where the Committee of Union and Progress showed up and forced uh Sultan Abdul Hamid to actually, you know, have a parliament. Because they were like, we are fed up of you having all of the power because one, you're an inbred dipshit who clearly has syphilis. And two, we want to, we're a political party who will rig the election because we're the guys who have all of the guns. Hey. Because it turns out if the entire military votes for a political party, they have all the guns and can bully people at the ballot box. Which I suppose. Democracy does work, yeah. Yeah, robust democracy right there. And in fairness, it did involve beating Boris Johnson's great-grandfather's party in an embarrassing route. So, you know, none of us can really say whether it's good or bad. (laughs) But here's something kind of ironic about early Ataturk, right? He put forward this idea to the Committee of Union Progress. Now, he's not like a major figure in this party. He's quite a minor figure in the party. But he's like, guys, what if we didn't have a political military. What if we depoliticized the army? And the end result of that was nobody liked that. No Mm. one liked that at all. Everyone, in fact, wanted a super political army. And so his punishment for that was to be sent to Libya. Huh. Yeah. So he was sent to Libya, and the, the sort of pretext for it was... That he, uh, he's, you were sending you to Libya, Mustafa, because you need to put down this tribal revolt. We need to put a stop to these, these tribals in Libya. You know how they are. That's kind of the vibe of how I imagine that conversation going. It, some dispute as to whether he, like, voluntarily went to Libya or didn't or whatever. But, you know, he goes off to Libya and he successfully suppresses the revolt. Great, brilliant. Now, his revolt suppressing days aren't over because he comes back to Istanbul and there's an event that occurs called the 31st of March Incident. Oh, you're, it's always good oh. when, they, when something's referred to as the incident. Yeah, yeah the incident. Yeah. So what happens is there's, uh, there's something of a, of a political... So here's the thing. Once you coup the government once, suddenly it looks acceptable to coup the government again, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like, what legitimacy mm. does your government have if it came in by a coup? Yeah, you kind of broken the seal by that stage. Yeah, yeah. and um, <laughs> basically, some uh, some military officers uh, they don't take too kindly to, uh, to 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 you know to the to these upstart military officers with their fancy Western style education coming in and bullying the Sultan, the Uru Smallbean Sultan. Oh, it's it's. It's, his, it's the way he does self-care, being an autocrat. <laughs> but they were re- yeah, but they were really angry because the Committee of Union and Progress were, while they weren't, like, secularizing to the extent of the Republican People's Party eventually were, they still favored and preferred a secular outlook. You know, they were looking towards secularism. They were kind of like, we're going to gently ease into it, maybe. And also the Sultan is the Caliph. So, like, there's only so far we can realistically go with that in play. But, you know, we can do that. And so, and also there are people who legitimately, and I mean this really seriously, supported the Sultan just having absolute power. 
Oof. They were just like, yeah, the Sultan should obviously have absolute power. He is literally God's shadow on Earth by virtue of being the Caliph. How could we not have him have absolute power? Which, you know, and it will not surprise you to know that the Liberal Party uh, joined in this revolt as well. Not massively, but they kind of joined in it because they were like, well, you know, better, better to have a crack at it. Although, to be fair, ah. their last leader appears to be a prince. You, you gotta so, show willing, you know. You got you got to just like show up and be there. Yeah, you know, they, it would have been embarrassing. Sell a few if they newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> but also check out their party logo. Oh, this is gonna be the good. Liberal Party. It is that you know that came through like, transparent, mm, but yeah, that looks like a Trifford having a wank. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah their their whole thing that you'd think it's weird because their whole thing is like we're liberal and we want to decentralize power and also they explicitly identified as being in the center of politics which oh. i have to say they were getting out ahead of their their political descendants there but oh, yeah incredible yeah yeah horrible people in my opinion but anyway so there's this and so basically the way it happens is a lot of this garrison. So there's a, a garrison of elite Macedonian troops in Istanbul. And they're just kind of pissed off because they're being wound up by, you know, these protests and people insisting that the Sultan have power. And they're just kind of miserable and not being well managed by the coup government. So religious students basically start this, this uprising. And the CUP fucking panic. And what has to happen is Mustafa Kemal has to come back and suppress this rebellion in Istanbul. Like, he was a key figure in suppressing the rebellion, at least so the story goes. He seems to be kind of like the go-to guy for suppressing rebellions around this point. Yeah, he's he's the rebellion. You know how I'm like the book guy for Praxis Cast? He's the rebellion <laughs> guy for... He's the rebellion guy for the Ottoman Empire. Anyway, I'm not mad about that at all. Although me and Rob are in discussions. We are oh, in discussions. We, we've both come with a book each this time. <laughs> so you can, all, you can all look forward to that. So he ends up going to Albania for a bit. And, you know, there are Albanian revolts and stuff. I think Albania declares independence in like 1910, 1912, I think. So he, I, he, ends up, uh, he ends up out of Albania before they go independent. So that's not his fault. And he didn't have to suppress a revolt. But what he did have to do was, well, after he served at the Ministry of War, which is very important, uh, he had to go to go back to Libya. We're back, baby. And I'm, sure they, I'm sure they welcomed him with open arms. Well, that's the thing, because he this time we know for a fact he volunteered. Because what had happened is, our favourite country, you know him, you love him, Italy, has decided to invade Libya. Of course. A... It's time. They're introducing pizza to Libya, folks. Here we go. <laughs> so, so the main theatre of combat here, it will surprise you all to know, is in fact Libya. But this is also why uh, Italy got them islands off the coast of Turkey that then ended up being Greece. So this is also that war. Oh. The, basically, the Ottomans, uh, they shit the bed big time here. This is not like the other war that happened in Libya. Where, um, where the Americans tried to do their first ever, like, outside of the, you know, America's war, showed up in Libya with a bunch of boats, and then the boats exploded because a bunch of Turkish people threw burning straw onto them. 
<laughs> more, or, so, more or less, an, that's an exaggerated version of how like incompetent the fucking Americans were in that. But it's not far off what happened. And in fact, that's uh, how the Ottomans forced the Americans to sign the only treaty they've ever signed that does not have an English translation. Oh, uh, yeah, it looks very nice. I wonder what that tre- what's that treaty called. Also, I'm seeing the Italian for the Tripolantian War, Guerra de Libia. There you go. I love. For some reason, Italian is just the funniest language to me. <laughs> it's just inherently a hilarious language. Uh, hold on. Uh, American attack Libya. No, wait. That's going to come up with a lot. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> hey, getting Benghazi pilled here. Ah, yeah. yes. First Barbary War. Um, first Barbary. I love that it's called Barbary. Wait, was it the first Barbary War or the second Barbary War? Because I think people were pissed off at the amount of um, piracy going on. They were very angry. I think we're back to um, we're back to like classic Facebook racism there, aren't we? Because that's another one they always go on about how the uh, the fucking U.S. Marines are called leathernecks because they had to wear collars to protect them from the Barbary pirates that tried to decapitate everyone or some shit. Yeah. Wow. I'm sure there's some there's some other like fucking piece of like American racist mythology related to that that, but it escapes me at the moment. So consider myself lucky. Yeah, I want the yeah. eighteen. I want the eighteen fifteen Barbary War. Hmm. The second Barbary War. It ends in a United States victory, which I think is very technical, um, <laughs> because I think they fought that they fought the second one against Algeria, as opposed to the Ottoman Empire. Um, I'm in yeah. America has never actually won a war, truth or anyway. Yeah, America has never won a war. There's no way it's actually won a war. In fact, here you can see a lovely image of the USS Philadelphia having to fight against Ottoman ships. You may note something interesting about the USS Philadelphia. Uh, It's having a bad time by the looks of it. (laughs) Yeah, it's on fire. (laughs) (laughs) So you can see how well it went. The Americans have never won. The Americans didn't even win their own civil war. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, there's no way they could win it. At best, it could have been a draw. I mean, there is that like technical side of it, but I meant that, like, you know what I mean? It's like supposedly the North won, but then the South just got more and more racist ever since. So, yeah, 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 the the South got to do more racism, but without the slavery. Which, you know, that's a whole thing. But, oh, I see what the problem was. I see why this war started because the Barbary states actually fucked America so bad that they were paying tribute to them. (laughs) Oh, wow. Excellent. Excellent. I love the Barbary Corsairs. I'm not just saying that because I'm definitely descended from a Barbary Corsair. <laughs> but also, I love the Barbary Corsairs. They fucking rock so hard. So, so the Italian-Turkish War, the Italo-Turkish War, or the uh, Tripolantian War. Basically, the Ottoman Empire have about 8,000 troops at the start. The Italians have sent 100,000. because the, <laughs> I, th- I think because the Italians are keenly aware that they are really bad at doing war. (laughs) Like, yeah, there is no country that has a consistently worse record at war than Italy. Even France, for all their flaws, won several wars. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, to be fair, France was a war-winning machine for a while. Yeah, I mean, if if you sort of count Napoleon's various coalition wars separately, I mean, they were on a roll. Hmm. In any case, uh, it turns out, despite the fact that the Italians outnumbered the Turks approximately 20 to 1, it was a fucking shit show. They plunged a bunch of money into it. They plunged a shit ton of money into it. 
and basically fucked it big time. And Mustafa Kamal was kind of, he, um, eventually the Ottoman number of troops ends up reaching about 28,000. And the Italians end up being 150,000, if you want an idea of what the numbers were, were like towards the end. And he mainly kind of deals with this uh, part of Libya called Tobruk, and is famous for being in the Battle of Tobruk, where, uh, where basically what happens is the Italians decide to show up with a shit ton of troops, and the Ottoman forces there, they don't really have much in the way of, like, guns and shit, because if you look at a map of the Ottoman Empire, you'll notice that there's a big thing between Libya and the rest of the Ottoman Empire called Egypt that's owned by Britain. Oh. And Britain tacitly supported the Italians, so you can't do overland stuff. But also the Italians blew up all of the ships that the Ottomans had, so you can't even bring ships to bring guns. So this is an army that is largely um, using like equipment that was already there, sharpened sticks and spears. Can they not get that one guy with the hang glider, you know, that went across like the first international flight? Or whatever? <laughs> just... Intercontinental flight, yeah. yeah. Just get him delivering the goods. But actually, it's interesting that you do mention that because this is the first war where combat aircraft were used. Oh. And uh, interesting fact, the Italian and Ottoman air forces, oldest air forces in the world. Oh. Hmm. There you go. Did not know that. Hmm. Yeah. And also, fun fact, I guess since we're doing air force facts, uh, Turkey had the first uh, black combat pilot in the world. So there you go. Lots of lots of interesting facts. A- aviation facts for you all. Yeah, I didn't even know Italy had an air force. Yeah, I mean, you'd be you'd be forgiven for thinking that. <laughs> to be fair, because it's really strange. Because the Italians in World War Two, when they presented their planes to the Germans, the Germans were furious because the wings flapped like a bird. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! To be fair, the Italian air force did manage one notable thing, which was killing Italo Balbo by accident. So. <laughs> also, it's very funny to name your child Italo. Can we, can we talk about that for a second? <laughs> I wonder if he had a brother called Ubaldo. Ubaldo Balbo would be great. Ubaldo Balbo. God, Ubaldo <laughs> is such a powerful name. And the fact that the guy who's called Ubaldo in Hearts of Iron is also famously a ridiculously incompetent military leader just, just puts the cherry on top of the whole thing. Italian excellence, man. Yeah. And also, to be fair, this is also the first war where an airplane was shot down because... Some Turkish guy with a rifle managed to nail the shot. <laughs> oh, beautiful. So there you go. This is a very important war, actually, for the history of war, because airplanes are used in it, and also because Italy actually win it. It's Italy's one military victory until they get the second go at Ethiopia. Fuck. Yeah. Oh, that's it, kind of embarrassing, man. It is really embarrassing, because they outnumbered the Ottomans variously, like, 20... To, f- to 15 to 1 and they barely managed it because apparently the Italian government were like this is costing, the Italian Socialist Party were like this is costing too much money, we would simply do this war more cheaply <laughs> <laughs> which um, because they're like, they're like social it's, democrats they're like, it's the Ottoman Empire how hard could this realistically be <laughs> um, you gotta remember, Italian Socialists were an anti-war party at the time, that's kind of their, their whole thing was like, yes, this is sinking a lot of money and life into it but also like, we shouldn't have gone there in the first fucking place because this is back when Mussolini was in the Socialist Party, but was, like, beefing about being anti-war or pro-war. Although, to be fair, he does that a bit later, but Mussolini is still in the Socialist Party. And he, he even took an anti-war position, because he was like, this war's fucking stupid, what do we need Libya for? And also, how do we keep losing troops in, against the Ottoman Empire? The Ottoman Empire barely exists, and this is a thing. 
the Ottoman Empire basically barely exists for a long time. Oh, boy. So, th- then he gets, then obviously Mustafa Kamal gets called back after um, a bunch of, basically after he sustains an injury. Uh, because basically, uh, Italian planes drop some bombs on his position. A bit of a bit of stone gets in his eye, which caused like tissue damage to his eye, and he obviously got to get medical treatment. And he kept trying to discharge himself early, but they're like, "Your eye's gonna get fucked." Discharges himself early, eyes get fucked. Goes back to the fucking medical bit, <laughs> and he basically does all of these various like quite heroic last stands but they're all last stands because the ottoman army's in such a state like they are all we're pulling everything together we're like sharpening sticks and throwing stones and shit like that that's the state they're in and eventually they seed um tripoli uh fezzan and kiranaika which is what libya is to italy in the bad treaty of lausanne not the good one Although, to be fair, the good one also had a long period where people discussed whether certain people were human or not. So, uh, mm. you know, but, but since the more famous treaty existed, they call it the Treaty of Uchi, or Auchi, if you read it perfectly in English. So, <laughs> which is certainly what the Ottoman Empire sustained in this one. Because here's what happened. Everyone saw, man, the Ottoman Empire lost to the Italians? And so oh, no. all of the Balkan countries declared war on the Ottoman Empire. And the Bulgarians start doing an offensive towards Istanbul. And he ends up being part of an amphibious landing on the coast of, uh, on the coast of Thrace to try and like sneak behind the Italians. Not the Italians, fuck. The Bulgarians. It would have been some feat if the Italians made it to this one. <laughs> and um, yeah, that war goes badly. He doesn't really play a massive fucking role. In that one, but in then obviously there's the second Balkan War because everyone is now instead of being pissed at the Ottoman Empire, they're pissed at the Bulgarians, and they actually uh, they actually retook uh, the city called Adirne or Adrianople in uh, Greek and I guess Bulgarian. It's kind of the same thing; it just be dif- slightly different, uh, which is important because it was actually the capital of the Ottoman Empire for a while. So he ends up being part of the sort of military at that campaigns to take that back. And that's more or less where the modern border of Turkey is drawn, actually, with the West. That's more or less where the line is drawn now, uh, the River Merich. Um, but then he's appointed military attaché to all of the Balkan states. He is simply the Balkan guy. He's hanging out with all the Balkan people, which I think is perhaps a dangerous thing to do. But at this point, he's a colonel. And, you know, military colonels, I don't know. That's, uh, that's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting uh, thing. Now. Everyone just, loves just imagining him getting a series of telegrams that are just like YouTube comments, just one yeah. after the other. <laughs> just like, just, just like you, you are weak sperm, just constantly, <laughs> constantly yeah, being barraged with abuse. So we might have to make this a two-parter, to be honest, because we're, we're like in 1913. Oh boy, <laughs> yeah, but. Basically, there's lots of like personal life stuff here. They're like, oh, did he bang the daughter of a Bulgarian general? Did he do that? Possibly. I don't know. He was in the Balkans hanging out. Apparently, they started, they danced at a ball, and that's our entire fucking basis for this, I think. <laughs> um, actually, to be fair, he did ask for permission to, uh, to, to marry her twice. And to be fair, uh, the second time he did it during World War I, which I have to say, inconvenient time to ask. Yeah, so far because it's 1915, so he would have been at Gallipoli, which is where we'll go to next. 
So everyone remembers Gallipoli, um, the the very famous uh, Churchillian fuck up. That's where the word Churchillian was invented, actually. This is very true, yeah. Uh, that is uh, actually true. It was originally a term of derision. <laughs> as it and, should be again. As, yeah. as it should be again, yeah. And so basically, must, so here's the situation in the Ottoman army at the time. They are very closely allied to the Germans, and so they actually have German officers in charge of Turkish officers. The German officers. One, the officer corps was shit. Um, just to be quite frank about the German officer corps, they were very bad, which is why they kept losing wars. Two, they didn't really understand the, how shit the Turkish military was or the Ottoman military was. Whereas, like Mustafa Kemal, basically, basically beefed with all the German generals and was like, "I'm going to disobey orders," and by repeatedly disobeying orders, effectively prevented Gallipoli from falling in one famous incident. Because he basically, his troops had run out of ammo, and the Brits were advancing. And if they'd advanced, they would have just split the front in two, basically. They would have been able to just split the front in two and just it, it basically envelop both sides of the army. Instead, what Mustafa Khan did was like, everyone pretend like you have ammo, and just lie down and dig into the position and pretend like we have ammo, and it'll probably scare the Brits. But if it doesn't, the time it takes for them to kill us will be enough time for reinforcements to get here. So... <laughs> You know, it, it's it's very. It was literally like, "I'm not ordering you to fight. I'm ordering you to die." Is the famous quote that he allegedly said here. Incredible. I, I'm guessing like his Libya experience probably played into that a little bit. Oh, definitely. Because like, imagine how imagine if the Brits are easy to dupe with this kind of move, which they were. Imagine how easy the Italians were to trick. <laughs> imagine, imagine like tricking the Italians now. He is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly fucking popular at this point. Because he is, you know, in reporting the papers, it's like the great hero of, uh, of Gallipoli. And, you know, once the Allies retreat, he ends up in Erdune for a bit. And then he eventually gets sent to command an entire army in the Caucasus. This, um, basically, well, a core of an army. So he gets sent to the Caucasus. And... The, at this point, the Russians had reached quite far into Anatolia, and basically, he tricked the Russians. He basically did the old Napoleon move of pretending he was going one way and then going the other, and then captured two major cities and disrupting the entire Russian um, <laughs> Russian supply situation there. Which in the Caucasus, given that it often reaches temperatures of minus 35 during this war uh, it's kind of important to have the supplies ready to go you know it's just it's just yeah. sort of a thing but instead and you'd think like considering how competent he was they'd keep him there right but the government wanted to send him off to establish a new army in what's, what's called Hejaz which uh, is sort of like the coastal bit of Saudi Arabia but he was like well no I want to I want to fight the Russians I'm beating the shit of the Russians beating the shit out of the Russians and he ends up being in command of the second army but all of the armies left because guess what happened? The Bolsheviks happened. Oh, our boys. So then he ends up being in charge of the Seventh Army, and which means that he is now under the command of a fucking German general again. And oh. this army is predominantly fighting in the Middle East, and uh, this is Lawrence of Arabia town, basically. Um, it basically sucked. And obviously, as a general, he ends up visiting uh, German lines on the Western Front and basically started slagging off, like, all the Kaiser and his generals in front of them. He was like, you're all fucking terrible at your jobs and you're going to lose this war. <laughs> and then, <laughs> which he, I guess he was is right. True. He was right, yeah. And 
basically the rest of his World War One experience is he keeps winning every battle, but the Ottoman Empire is very clearly losing the war. It's a very Rob Stark situation. You know, he's won every battle, which is very important because that fits into his um, sort of, you know, political reputation later, where they're like, he's the one undefeated general. Fuck yeah. Um, so the thing is, now, there is, like, this section on, like, Ottoman genocides that we should probably address at this point. What did he know? What didn't he know, right? Um, he was not a, a sort of close member of the, uh, of the movement. He'd sort of left the movement, or the movement left him, I suppose you might say, uh, over time. And he just sort of, and obviously when you're off fighting wars all the time, you don't really have much time to be, you know... Doing political shit. Yeah. Yeah. But he explicitly condemns the killings that happen. So there is apparently some reasonably um, conclusive evidence that one, he was, at he was at least definitely not directly involved in any killing, right? Like, there is no evidence that any, he gave any orders or, you know, moved to civilians or anything, gave orders to move civilians or anything like that. There is no surviving evidence of that being the case. But also given his later condemnation of um, of the genocides, you would think that it would be unlikely that it was the case, I think. Mm. In fact, there are contemporaries of his who he met with who were sent to sort of investigate the possibility of genocide, who keep saying, like, he kept talking about how much he disapproved of it, which one implies he knew something of it, because, mm. you know, why are all these Westerners here investigating whether a genocide's happened if it didn't happen? Yeah. In 1920, in the Turkish parliament, he calls the genocides a shameful act. And in contrast to the modern Turkish political position on the matter, he very specifically did not deny that the genocides happened. Mm. And I cannot emphasize this enough. If any Turkish nationalists listen to this, I cannot emphasize this enough. He never took a position of denialism, which... Of course not. How could you, right? How could you take that position logically? Yeah. But obviously his slate is not completely clean because obviously, as we discussed, there are suspicions about that fire in Izmir that we talked about in the second episode. Yeah. Where the painting was a bit different from the pictures. Yeah. Right? Not to mention also just, you know, being a military commander responsible for repressing rebellions up and down the empire Probably oh, yeah. means he's implicated in something, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, look, th there's... These things, are, and these things are really weird and complicated and obscured by the official Turkish position a lot of the time because the official Turkish position is he's a saint, he didn't do anything wrong, how could he have done anything wrong? But just think about it logically, right? Just, just think about it logically as to what being a military commander who puts down what at the time were called tribal rebellions means. Aha, uh -huh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know, it sounds like there's some kind of problem there. But we at least know in the case of the Armenian Genocide that he never adopted a position of denialism. In fact, there were trials done, I think we discussed briefly in one episode, trials done to, for some of the, like, you know, lesser, you know, not so high up perpetrators of the genocide. There were trials held for them because it was quite strongly disapproved of, as you would imagine, right? Yeah. And so that kind of brings us nicely into the Turkish War of Independence. Uh, we talked about the Turkish War of Independence at length, but there is some personal life stuff, right? 
Um, we could get into his personal, his messy personal life. This is the kind of shit that could get you shot in Turkey. So, bearing that in mind, everyone, uh, let's talk mm. about his personal life. So, there are two women involved here. One is Fikriya Hanım, as she's known in, uh, in Turkish. She was apparently some kind of relatively distant relative of uh, Mustafa Kemal, at least that's the alleged position. Now, some people thought that she had married Mustafa Kemal, other people thought she didn't. Uh, it's, it's, kind of, uh, it's kind of complicated, I guess. It's one of these things where like, his personal life is very explicitly off-limit. And yeah. the thing with Fikre Hanum is she's much more what you might call traditional, right? You know, she would wear the headscarf, you know, she would do the cooking and the cleaning and all this other stuff, right? But she was, like, infatuated with him. And she, um, she was actually eventually... So here's the thing. There's, um, there's sort of... Um, there's, in that TV show I mentioned, uh, Kurtulush, they have that sort of Jumhriyet follow-up um, where... This woman actually features, and it's actually very strange to feature her because this is actually quite a controversial, um, controversial thing. So she falls ill. Now I've seen two versions of this. One is that she has mental health issues, as as do we all, I suppose. Mm. And Mustafa Kemal had her sent to Switzerland to deal with that. The other thing I've seen is that she was sent to um, to Munich for respiratory disease. Either way, uh, what happens b- before she's sent away is that Mustafa Kemal meets this Western-educated rich woman called Latifa, Latifa Hanum, I think it is. But yeah, Latifa Hanum. That's what she's. That's what she's commonly known as, Latifa Hanum. And she's, you know, she's the modern Turkish woman, you know, in that very Soviet, you know, modern Soviet woman kind of way, right? right. And. Mm-hmm. She uh she ends up marrying Mustafa Kemal quite um quite quickly, actually. And Fikre hears about this, and she um now this is the thing. She had been gifted a gun by Mustafa Kemal. Now this is not like a, a thing that he did to imply that she should do something. It was just a nice gift at the time. His own gun. It's very nice. But she is wounded by a firearm in front of Chankaya, which is uh, a mansion in uh, Ankara. It's the presidential mansion. Well, it was, till Erdogan built his fucking monstrosity, I suppose. Yeah. And um, they basically had to have a 30-year investigation into her death because everyone was like, this is super strange. She died by firearm. Now, in the TV show, they dramatize it by showing her in um, Switzerland or wherever it is reading a newspaper saying Mustafa Kemal got married and then she shoots herself in the head. What actually happens is she goes to, she goes to, um, to Turkey and Mustafa Kemal's like, I didn't ask for this woman to come here. She shouldn't be here. Don't come, don't come back. Don't, she's not allowed to come back to Turkey at all. Cause I have a wife now. I ain't oh, dealing with this shit. Uh, yeah, it's cold. But basically yeah. her, her death investigation goes on for 90 years. Like it's a big fucking deal. It took 90 years for this investigation to finally be, everyone to finally be like, you know what, maybe we don't need to know. Because <laughs> we didn't, we couldn't figure out, uh, we, basically we couldn't figure out whether it was suicide or homicide. Yeah, and the body's no one... long called by now. Oh yeah, no one knows where her grave is. Fuck. So, I mean, I think if, if after 90 years you can't even work out whether it was a murder or not, you should maybe just like fucking give it up, you know? 
Yeah, it was. It's not. Yeah, no one's criticized the government for not following through. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> like, it's, it's far too. Like, it's far too late to get Poirot on the case at that point. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. The, the um the the thing is the the um the investigation survived military coups. <laughs> wow. Several military coups. By the but like by my reckoning, it must have it. Yeah, it must have been closed in twenty in twenty fourteen. Jesus. Like it must have been, it must have been closed in around 2014. So then we move on to Mustafa Kemal, the president. So what's the what's the vibe of Mustafa Kemal, the president? Well, the one thing is that he he obviously does all of these very fantastic reforms that uh, that you've all that you've all heard about in previous episodes. But he is generally regarded as like an extremely hardworking guy. You know, hardest working man in Turkey. He's he's supporting every single. Uh, you know, uh, political party. <laughs> he's he's trying to jumpstart democracy. All of these good things, and he he gets really into like history. He becomes a history guy. Oh no! Which, as you might imagine, led to some of these problems that occurred later because he starts naming the banks that are being founded by the state. And you'd think, well, what's he going to realistically name him? It can't be anything weird. But he, he names the first one Sumerbank. Named after Sumeria. <laughs> yes. Already, already off to a fantastic start. Um, then he names the second one Etibank, which is named after the Hittites. <laughs> what's this about? What's this? Why has he become a history guy? Why has he become a history guy? But Obviously, he's partially a history guy because, well, one, history is kind of fun and interesting, and two, uh, you know, the it, it's useful to a nationalist project to be able to be like, actually, here's the thing: we're Hittites and Sumerians, mm-hmm. and they were also Turks. So let's not uh, let's not get, look too deeply into that. And in fact, here's a bit: Ataturk himself traveled the countryside to teach citizens the new alphabet, which oh yes. Yeah, we uh we love that. We love that bit. That's our favorite bit. I just love yeah. I, I love the uh I love the pictures of Ataturk sort of I love the pictures of Ataturk sort of doing stuff where he like goes to yeah. um goes to teach people the language or stuff like that. But he you, obviously you can, see, you can see how like charismatic he must have been just from being such a driven guy, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um I believe he like very specifically invented the terms that are used to describe geometry now in Turkey. So he oh. he actually he actually wrote textbooks. Like this motherfucker personally wrote textbooks. That maths teacher must have been so proud. Yeah, he wrote <laughs> he wrote two. One is called Civic Knowledge for the Citizens, which is, uh, which is the which is sort of like poli sci basically. You know, like you know that's kind of he was doing poll prof stuff. But he oh was God. doing Paul Prof stuff to explain the new form of government he was introducing to the country. He's like, no, let me teach you the government form so that you can do it properly once I'm gone. You'll pro- <laughs> you promise you'll do it properly, right? Uh, question marks around that. And the second one was just geometry. Bit less, <laughs> bit less of a popular follow-up, I think. To be honest, the difficult second textbook, as it's known. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's some debate about... Um, how serious he actually was about democracy. And, 
you know, what kind, what manner of autocrat was he? Was he really the last autocrat so that Turkey had no more autocrats, even though he was succeeded by a guy who acted as an autocrat? Generally speaking, the consensus seems to be that he wanted, he, he sort of looked at Europe and saw how poorly democracy was doing and was like, we want to have democratic administration, but also like, look at these richer countries and what fucking problems they're having with this shit. Are you, uh, so big, basically, big Sicarno energy there. Yeah. So basically what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to get there eventually. We're building up to it. But what I'm going to do as dictator is mostly leave you the fuck alone in your private life. You know, you can, you know, and a lot of people are, uh, kind of do apologism for this because they're like, oh, more couldn't have been expected in his lifetime. And I'm like, but that's not really true, is it? Like, plenty of countries did actually have functional democracies at this point of various types. So, I don't, I don't know whether he... So he was just like, oh, look at Germany. How could we possibly have a democracy? We do need to guide. Enlightened guidement. You know, enlightened guiding. You know, we're just going to guide them gently, correctly. We're going to have guided democracy, you might call it. Which, obviously, wasn't really democracy. And he he also you know, is personally involved in the, uh, in the passing of racist policies, you know, many times, mm. or policies that end up being racist. Now, there's some debate about, like, whether his intentions are, like, racist himself. I would argue it doesn't matter no. what your mm. personal intentions are. If the yeah. net... Because here's the thing. This motherfucker can tell media outlets and political parties to close as personal favours to him. You can definitely get the parliament to not ban names of foreign origin if you really want to. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely within your grasp, like... <laughs> like, there's a whole thing of, like, ah, oh, this kind of stuff kind of gets glossed over. They're like, no, it's good, because we got surnames out of it. And I'm like, yeah, but, like, Iceland's doing fine. They don't have surnames, they have patronyms. Although, admittedly, you do have to have an app to check whether you're going to bang your cousin. <laughs> <laughs> that is a real thing, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's shame a small place. Shame they don't have it in Alabama, to be honest. Mm. But mm, anyway, but burn on our Alabama listener. Well, do you think that um, would deter them? <laughs> well, no, I imagine, I imagine it's a kink thing for them at this point. <laughs> a, lot of the, a lot of them must be, uh, must be um, you know, millennials, so I can, I can see what the appeal is, I guess, for them. I don't know. <laughs> oh, step, step cousin, who's also simultaneously your stepmom, stuck in. Um, oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> Can't even finish the joke because it's one very grim and two very hot in here. I'm gonna open this door. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's good. So, every, everyone, um, Artichoke's foreign policy, and you know, follows his personal life a little bit, which is peace at home, peace in the world. I wonder. Who, hey. I wonder if that would lead to the formation of a podcast eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Title drop. Yes. Yeah, there it is. There we are. We said the line. <laughs> That's it. You can stop listening now. Um, that's it. The podcast's over. No. Um, but basically, his foreign policy generally falls under the category of no more problems. You know, his personal foreign policy position is let's just not have problems with anyone. Let's just, uh, let's just um, you know, be chill with everyone. But of course, he pissed off the Soviets because they were like, he's doing rapprochement with the imperialists. Look at him. He's being nice to the Brits occasionally and the Greeks who bizarrely the bolsheviks considered to be um considered to be imperialist but mm. uh he actually has a really good relationship with greece 
and Greek hmm. various Greek prime ministers. In fact, he has a very good friendship with Metaxas. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, Metaxas says about him, Greece, which has the highest estimation of the renowned leader, heroic soldier, and enlightened creator of Turkey. We will never forget that President Ataturk was the true founder of the Turkish-Greek alliance, based on a framework of common ideals and peaceful cooperation. He developed ties of friendship between the two nations, which would be unthinkable to dissolve. Boy, wait till you start arguing about islands that only have sheep on them. Greece will guard its fervent memories of this great man who determined an unalterable future path for the noble Turkish nation. So, you know, he left an impression on the, uh, on the, uh, on the Greeks. He's a good friend of Metaxas, apparently. There you go. They, they loved him over there. And, you know, they did sign the Balkan Pact, you know, eventually. You know, the, the little Entente, in a way. Where, you know, all of the big Balkan players, Turkey, Greece, Yugoslavia and Bulgaria, were like, you know what, we're going to have a, you know, we're going to make sure the Balkans don't change very much. Because every time it changes, we end up with a bunch of refugees and genocide. So we're going to keep the borders the same. And obviously the little guys, Albania and Bulgaria, were very angry. Because they were like, but Mm. what about my (laughs) pan-nationalism? I'm watching the TV and all of these countries get to have their pan-nationalisms, but I don't. You know, like, that's basically the reaction they have, which is obviously why Bulgaria eventually joins the Axis. Yeah, famously, the Balkans remained very, very, very stable after this uh, treaty was signed. Yeah, that's it. And no, no one heard from them ever again. He also signs the legendary Treaty of Sadabad, which uh, Hearts of Iron players will recall improves relations with several countries, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan and Iran. But actually, here's the funny thing about the um, about this. So, the funny thing about this is it was it was one a non-aggression pact, but two it was a mutual defense pact, which was basically aimed at Italy. Huh. It was specifically an anti-Italian treaty. Oh, amazing! Which is incredibly funny for so many reasons. But you got to understand the situation in these countries at this point, right? So. In Iraq, there's a military government um, while this is being negotiated. And they, um, the military government at the time is left-leaning. And so they're like, well, you know, Mustafa Kamal, he's kind of left-leaning and a military government, so aren't we kind of meant to be friends? But also it's important to note that the leader of Iraq at this time was a Kurd, um, oh. Bakr Sidki, who himself was Kurdish. Um, and his prime minister was a gentleman called Hikmat Suleiman, who was a Turkmen. So his government was like perfectly geared towards wanting to sort things out with Turkey, which is very interesting when you think about it. He's, Mustafa Kamara was also uh, quite um, basically had a good sort of working relationship with Reza Shah, who was the, you know, uh, the Pahlavi dynasty in Iran, because their position was the Brits need to fuck off but we need to yes. tell them to fuck off in a way that means they don't, like, coup us or execute us or anything. Um, but the Iranians were really pissed because um, he abolished the caliphate, because the Iranian clergy, the ulema, were like, wait a minute, he's going to try and encourage Reza Shah to abolish us. Oof. Don't you see? He's turning everyone into a communist and a secularist, which was obviously insane on one count and possibly true on the other, but it wasn't his problem. Uh, but obviously, because the ulema had a lot of political power in Iran, you know, people think it started with the Islamic Revolution. It didn't. Uh, it, it was it was difficult. It was a bit difficult, you know. And basically, he really, really wanted to protect Iraq from being dismembered by um, Britain, basically. Mm. 
And uh, he basically, and basically, Afghanistan is sort of called in as a sort of, you know, hey, the Brits are p- uh, get pissy at you too. So this becomes an anti-Italian and anti-Brit um, <laughs> uh, treaty. Unfortunately, Good. it didn't didn't work out too well protecting Iran from British predation. Unfortunately, it also didn't do too well protecting Afghanistan either. But no, <laughs> so look, no one, no one said it's, um, no one said it was easy, right? But. Obviously, the main bit of his foreign policy, the main controversy was him taking over the Straits again. Because he saw Germany reoccupy the Rhineland and was like, well, why don't I get to put troops in my demilitarized zone? You know, (laughs) not unreasonably necessarily. You know, Mm. I love how I'm doing everything in the tone of the time that Turkish fascist party leader complained about biscuits (laughs) at his rally. But I'm doing every single like complaint in that tone. He also tries to resolve the issue of Hatay. You know, his, his political project is broad. You can see just how hardworking this guy is, right? Yeah, he never took a fucking day off by the sounds of it. Yeah, but there are some other, like, personal life stuff that we should wrap up. He adopted 13 children. He never had any uh, children of his own, but he adopted 13 children. Uh, the most famous of these is Sabia Gökçen, who has an airport night named after her in Istanbul and was also the first female fighter pilot. Oh, hey, another aviation first. Yeah, aviation girl boss. This has become the aviation zone, weirdly. Yeah. And people kind of get weird about his personal religious beliefs, right? They're like, oh, you know, he was a devout Muslim. But also, like, he drank alcohol, which does pose some questions as to how devout Muslim he must have possibly been. He famously drank a lot of alcohol. Well, yeah, because he does die of the old cirrhosis, um, which is... As we established, yeah. Yeah, we did establish, and he actually, his exact time is recorded of death. 9.05 in the morning on the 10th of November 1938. I want you to guess how the most normal peninsula in the world talks about this, how it reacts to this event. What what do you think happens on the 10th of November every year at 9.05 in the morning? Does everyone drink? No, (laughs) that would be very strange. Everyone, sirens go off across the country, and everyone has to immediately stop what they're doing and stand to attention, basically. Oh, wonderful. Now this... Just, you, <laughs> just now this, the relaxed Turk meme. <laughs> yeah, this has, uh, this has caused an issue in the past, uh, because sometimes you're driving when the siren goes off. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't stop your car, people will drag you out of your car and kick the shit out of you. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, it is insane. Obviously, eventually, he gets put into his uh, 42-ton sarcophagus what the <laughs> and gets put into a mausoleum called Anatkabur, which is a gigantic mausoleum complex. Here's a picture of a bit of it with some protesters, pro Ataturk protesters, I should say, in front of it. It's, this is a huge mausoleum. That's Fucking just the hell. one bit of the mausoleum. It has multiple wings. How the, how the fuck was the sarcophagus 42 tons? They bury him with his neutron star collection or some shit. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess. But, but obviously once he died, he, um, he, uh, in his will, he donates all of his possessions to the Republican People's Party, a good party man. And he, but also only, that the yearly, only on the condition that the yearly interest of the funds would be used to look after his sister and his adopted children and fund the higher education of Isma Inonu's children course looking out for his bro because you got to remember they were like their personal relationship was that they were basically the closest allies 
And it's yeah. always depicted in that way that these are just basically the bros who change. It's basically like in Scissorain. It's um, it's Anton Rain and Petter Vecton. But if, but if they were both actually reasonably competent people, Beautiful. which is a bit, bit of a difficult one. But the remainder was given to the Turkish Language Association and the Turkish Historical Society, which we've talked about at other times, uh, which yeah. were founded alongside neo-fascist. Well, not neo-fascist; they were pre-fascist, but you know, proto-fascist organizations. Which is fine and good. Obviously, the man left behind quite a legacy. So his Turkish legacy we'll talk about in future episodes because it is incredible why the cult of personality really, like, fucking pushed it into overdrive. Because they did it to own someone. Oh, yes. It was done to own someone. Because of Beautiful. course it was. And, <laughs> yeah. And it was, it, was, it was done despite the fact that the party who did it really opposed basically everything he did in his lifetime. <laughs> well, you know, when you want to get one over on somebody, it's amazing the lengths he'll go to. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of people who, um, who paid tribute to him, obviously. Uh, Winston Churchill was one of them. Uh, the the, um, the All-India Muslim League eulogized him as a truly great personality in the Islamic world, a great general and a great statesman. I Which, bet the the Australians must have had something to say about it too. Oh uh, yeah, they generally seem to like him. I think, but there's oh, yeah, a specific yeah. quote I could find. Um, although, to be fair, also Reza Shah and the Indian Prime Minister Nehru um, specifically um, sort of cited him as an inspiration in a way, which is interesting from Nehru, isn't it? Um, yeah. Because a lot of the sort of non-aligned third world sort of presidents, so like Sadat and Nehru and uh, even the Pahlavis, although the Pahlavis knew him, um, they kind of saw him as like the first. He was the first one to do it, right? Mm. Even though that's a little unfair on the Ethiopians, I think. It's like a tiny bit unfair on the Ethiopians. But, you, but anyway, I guess they were the first ones to do it and have it stick for long yeah. enough. Yeah. And to do it in a republican and secular way. I would oh yeah, well. yeah. I suppose that's kind of the other thing as well. But so you know, this is a widely admired guy from Winston Churchill to Hitler to Nehru to um to Sadat. Which there you go. That's a range. That is some range. <laughs> that is eclectic, man. Yeah. Yeah. However, not everyone seemed to like him. Uh, would you like to hear what uh, Boris Johnson's great grandfather thought of him? Describe him as. <laughs> go for it. Described him as a bandit chief. Is that supposed to make sound bad? <laughs> by the way, of course, yeah. like the melt came up with the coolest insult <laughs> in history. I'm a bandit chief, motherfucker. Hell bandit, yeah. bandit chief brackets racistly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, a little bit. And also, may as well, may as well um, call them a fucking pirate king. <laughs> oh, the cool two coolest things to combine. Uh, some, how many of you, how many of you, you two, you're probably familiar with uh, a gentleman called Arthur Balfour, or oh, Lord Balfour, Balfour. Yeah. Rings the a man, bell. The man who did the Balfour Declaration, which perhaps precipitated the, lo- the most intractable conflict in the Middle East to this day, mm. which I have to say, given the nature of the Middle East, is impressive. <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, that's but he, British, uh, British that's good old, yeah, yeah, good old-fashioned British ingenuity, that. <laughs> yeah, but he described uh, he described Mustafa Kemal as the most terrible of all the terrible Turks. Again, making him sound fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. 
What is I it with ma- those Anglophiles, eh? Yeah, <laughs> that is definitely... Um... <laughs> oh, no. I feel like we've got a bit more of a handle and an insight on the big man in the background. You know, where mm. he came from, why he may have done some things. Of course, one of the whys is, you know, he did secular education. You know, he went to the reformed schools. The good schools, some might say. But... Obviously, I've just, I've just looked at his Wikipedia page and I've looked at the list of prime ministers and it's just a decline. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just such a sad decline. Isma Inonu, Feti Okia, Jalal Baya. Oh. Oh, it's such a steep fall off. The bald, the bald. We're going to talk about the bald guy relatively soon. <laughs> in fact, oh. in the next episode. But if you want to hear about bald people, uh, I guess you're going to have to wait for it. Yep. Sorry. Uh, but if you really want to hear about bald people, I guess I'm going to be dunking on centrist podcasts on my YouTube, so... Oh, is that Detatus over? Yeah, yeah. Well, to be fair, we'll have done this before that drops, I reckon. But anyway, everyone, thank you for sticking around. If you stuck around this long to hear me call him a bandit chief, well done. This is, <laughs> yep. this is going to be a long episode, let me put it that way. I'm not looking forward to the edit on this one. But that's it from us. We'll catch you on the bonus where we'll be talking about the time a Turkish guy tried to assassinate the Pope, and why that seems to involve Saudi Arabia. (laughs) (laughs) See ya, folks. Enjoy that. See ya. See ya, everyone.